all I know is I, I got great satisfaction out of seeing Cully and Joyce dig through the trash. <laughs> Maniacs. Hey, Maniacs. It's Midsummer Maniacs. I'm Mark. I'm Sarah. And we're the Midsummer Maniacs. It's we a, are? We are. Then it's lucky that we're on this podcast. That's, it is. <laughs> the Midsummer Maniacs is a recap podcast dedicated to the ITV series Midsummer Murders. Each week we dig into an episode of the show, including the murders, the mayhem, the loonies, and everything else we love. And this week we get to talk about... Season 9, Episode 4, Down Among the Dead Men. We don't even have to do a warning for you for this episode. Yeah, well, I mean... Except for the pictures in the cop shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty serious. But before we get into the episode, you got some stuff to say up to the top. Okay, first of all, uh, Sam Stewart on Twitter said that we were the best podcast he ever listened to. Oh, I trust him. I think he's right. Said he found his people. Yeah. He's from Australia. I think he's probably an expert on podcasts. I absolutely so. cannot believe that somebody in Australia is listening to us. That's great. It's insane. It's awesome. And then the second thing is actually you got mail. Uh, to our email account, it says "Hello, Sarah." Oh, uh, it, it's a a link to a story in the Thorian in the Fortean times that was probably it would be like December twenty nineteen. Okay, uh, and the title is "Occult Crime Wave." Ooh. So what this is the story of? Now this comes from the Fortean times. Okay, and who sent it to us? Uh, this individual called Bronash. Okay. I'm, I hope I don't. It's Bronash McFellan. Okay. I think that's how you pronounce his or her name. I'm okay. not sure. Okay. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. About the Police Pagan Federation. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, in the echo of Eric Digmold's work as a police consultant in criminal cases, C40 and Times 300, page 50 to 54, the Pagan Police Foundation, PPA, have been called to assist Hampshire Constabulary, who are investigating a series of grisly crimes with elements of black magic in and around the village of Bramshaw. Wow. So where this gets interesting and related to us comes halfway through the second paragraph where it says use of inverted crosses and the number 666 does not suggest paganism but rather some form of black magic or indeed teenagers reenacting a hammer horror film or midsummer murders episode <laughs> there's been no 666 in no. a midsummer and no pentagram. No, not yet. No. And just because a lot of the same actors have been in a Hammer Horror movie and uh, Midsummer doesn't mean that they're the same. No. They couldn't be more different. <laughs> the PPA is an interesting thing. I need to look it up. See if the it's Pagan a, Police Federation? Uh, Pagan Police Federation, yeah. Yeah, PPF. PPF. Yeah. yeah, me too. I made a note of it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I love stories like that where they just seem to just throw in a midsummer for fun. 
It's, it says it's a 200-strong organization formed in 2009 as a support group for pagans within the police force, but its members' expertise has subsequently been drawn upon during probes into horse maiming and attacks on churches. Whoa. Serious, man. Yeah. PPA. F. It's, it keeps saying PPA in the article. But it's federation. Maybe it's association, too. They Maybe. can't decide whether they're federated or just associated. We'll do some investigation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I love, you. I love news stories like that. Send them on. The article has an image of a lamb with a pentagram carved into it. Oh, it's not Barnaby with 666 scraped into his forehead or something? Nope. <laughs> so, episode 47. Down Among the Dead Men, Season 9, Episode 4, which sounds like a a pirate shanty, but is not. Down Among the Dead Men. Yes. Yeah. It's not a... No? What is it? It is an English drinking song, first published in 1728, but of course, probably older than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Song begins with a toast to the king, continues with... Tributes to the god Bacchus, which become increasingly less subtle descriptions of the benefits of alcohol and procuring sexual opportunities. <laughs> I don't get the connection between, hey, let's all get drunk and find some ladies with dead guys. Okay. At the conclusion of each stanza of the song, those who deny the song's declarations are condemned to lay among the dead men, a euphemism for drunken unconsciousness. Oh, okay. So if you can't drink anymore and go find the ladies with us, you can just pass out on the couch. Among the other dead guys. Yes. It's got nothing to do with pirates. Darn. The best part of this is it is a big song among glee clubs. <laughs> and YouTube is full of young men singing this particular song. Wow. A drinking shanty. Yes. About drinking and whoring. Now. For the glee club. Perfect. It's a good it, fit. What it isn't, and I, I don't want to point a finger or anything here, is somebody men, made mention to a flash in a pan song named Down Among the Dead Men, mm-hmm. which is doesn't reference, references the song in the, in the term of, that's the chorus of the song and that references it, but it's not the original song mm-hmm. in any way. Flash in the Pan is the, an Australian band. Uh, you might know them better uh, for their number more popular song. I don't think it reached number one, which was Hey St. Peter. It's that weird talking guy. Oh, it's a no weird idea. it's a weird seventies thing. It's You and music is almost yeah. like you and movies. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, that's a song that five people have heard and you know all about it. Yes. So, <laughs> I'm surprised you don't know the lead singer's name. Uh, I looked it up, but I can't remember it. Mm. So but it's not that song, but obviously they're making reference to this song. All right, you ready to get in? Yes. Martin Barrett. Kapow! Man, is he uptight for a blackmailing ascot wearer. Excuse me while I fix my teacups. <laughs> One can only hope those aren't his everyday dishes. And like, how long does it take him to wash the frickin' dishes? And yet he leaves the wine glasses and the whiskey glasses or port or whatever it is they're sipping on the draining board. Yeah. You think he would dry those and put those away too? You'd think. So they are perfectly arranged, though. 
Yes, of course they are. So. So he gets shot. So he's a clerk. That's all he is. He's a bureaucrat. Yeah, he's just a bureaucrat. And he is blackmailing everybody. Everybody. And at first you think this young lady who's come over, it's a date. Mm -hmm. But no, no, it's a business transaction. He wants to learn more about Sir John's refuge for young ladies. But we don't know that yet. So Haley Redfern is the character's name. And she lived at Sir John Waverly's home for wayward teen girls. Balak! Okay, are you going to shout Balak every time we talk about him? No. Okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, Everybody's confused now. Paul Freeman, who plays Sir John Waverly, played a character named Balak in the Indiana Jones movie. Which I have to tell you, as formative years, 76 through 80, I would have been 7 through 11. The big bads in movies were Jaws, The Exorcist, Darth Vader, and Balak. Yeah. He was a good villain. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get to him so you don't have to shout Balak every time we talk about him, right? Yeah. You okay now? I'm okay. You okay? I realized the Raiders of the Lost Ark's after 80, but still. Okay. (laughs) So Martin Barrett is an asshole. I don't think anybody's got a debate about that. No. But I'm trying to figure out. So he, he tracks down Haley and calls her and invites her for dinner and to stay over. Yeah. What does he say? How does he get her there? I don't know. I think he is offering her money, I would assume. Like he says, I want to make a beneficial, mutually beneficial arrangement. I guess. About your time at the Waverly home. I would assume. They they make a plan. Like, I think Martin realizes pretty quickly that Sir John didn't do anything bad. Oh, yeah. He knows that. And so... They hatch the plan to create this stigma around him. Yeah. They're going to threaten to say that he did bad things in exchange for money. And Haley's willing to do that, apparently. Because he's up for a high sheriff. Right. His death by shotgun at about five feet is quite traumatic. Yes. So you know about squibs. Yeah. Right? So squibs are blood packs taped to a person's body. And they, they're usually set to explode via some kind of pneumatic, right? Yeah. So they're pressurized in some way. So either, if you think about putting liquid in a Ziploc and sealing it up really tight so that there's no extra air, if you put pressure on that with something pointed, it's going to burst, Yeah. right? But a squib breaks from the inside out. Yeah. So you get this explosion, right? And at first I thought that Martin Barrett's character had a squib on the front because, man, that shotgun hits him. He's bloody on the front. There's blood that shoots out from the back. And when he slides down the wall, he tracks it down, right? And there's a whole lot of spatter. It's messy in his perfect house. Somebody who's seen the staircase and knows about spatter like I have, if you've not seen that documentary... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's crazy town. There's a lot of spatter. Yep. So I was like, but wow, his, but the front of his shirt does not blow out because it wouldn't, right? No. It would be in yeah. from the impact. So I wondered how they did that. So 
you know, as is usual, my history and my browser is very suspect right now. So how they would have done it is they would have had a squib on his back. So that would have been pressurized and triggered. Kapoof, right? Yeah. And that would have splattered back. Simultaneously, somebody is in front of him, which is easy, out of shot, because there's nothing else in shot with him. Yeah. With like... um a big plunger, basically. Not like a toilet plunger, but like a big syringe kind of plunger. Okay. That has, it's got, it's partially blocked on the tip. And we're talking a plunger that's like three feet long. Okay. Think of like a toy you would take to the pool to shoot water at each other. And it's packed with blood and like little bits of like cotton, like like stuffing. Yeah. That are also soaked in it. Yeah. And they may have either pushed it really hard, really fast, or that may have also been pneumatic. And it just goes splat. So that would have splatted on his front at the same time the squib exploded on his back. He's an actor, man. That's a good death. He does very little except fall down. It's the people who timed those things that did such yeah, a great job. Because some, that's not a shot you want to do more than once. No, there's some special effects there. Because what a mess. Oh my gosh, yeah. But I'm just thinking about the guy standing in front of him with a big plunger full of blood. Splat. <laughs> It's like having a, a big water gun full of it, you know, but all at once. One thing I did notice on this rewatching, it is actually Peter outside. Yes. Like, if you look closely enough, you recognize him. It's certainly a man. That's for sure. No, it's Peter. Like you can a, never suspect that a woman did this. No, no. It's like a big broad shoulder burly guy. Yeah. So then George and the geezers show up. Why does he have geezers again? <laughs> He's got a geezer gang <laughs> in their blue paper suits. But they have a new toy. I don't think there's a person on his crew that is under 65. They're all trying to get a spot. I guess. They have a new toy, though. Yes. They have the fingerprint captures, capture and analysis software. Version 2.16. Which is on a Toshiba a libretto 50CT. Yeah. Which sported, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. 16 megabytes of RAM. Whoa. And hard drive starting at 810 megabytes. Wow. Just for your knowledge, that couldn't fit one of our podcasts. No. <laughs> it was the first super compact computer. It was the size of a paperback. Yeah, it was very small. And could run Windows. Yeah. Which was incredible at the time. Yes. They, that particular model was released in 97. And when they released it, it was only two grand. Yeah. It was super small and super... That's uh, inexpensive for something of that power at that time. And it was uh, rugged, too. Yeah. Yep. But this software they're running on it, it's not real. No. And... I looked at it, and there's a weird menu on it, and you found out what it was. The weird menu, like it has file and all that normal menu mm -hmm. stuff. But then in the far end, it has PALS. P-A-L-S. Yeah. As near as I can tell, that is a peer networking application. So that would have connected the libretto to a printer or to another computer so you could transfer files. Um but it wouldn't be like Wi-Fi. It's, no. it's a plugged-in network. Right. Yep. Right. But it would have made that computer even more handy because you could connect it to a network. Yes. Anytime you wanted to. Yeah, it probably had an Ethernet port. Yeah, and that's how you download your files to yep. store them and all that good stuff. Yep. 
Yeah, I don't know about you. Did you know what that was when you first saw it? The the libretto. Well, I looked it up as soon as I first saw it. Because I all I saw was E T T O fifty C T. But I saw Toshiba. Yeah. So I put that in, and I got libretto. Oh, I was proud of myself because I was like asterisk E T T O fifty C T, and I found it. No, no. And then you already knew what it was. Sorry. I look up computers. I know you do. George and the geezers. I think they're trying to give George better and better ways of saying, I'll know more when I have done the autopsy. Yes, I think so. So he doesn't just say, I'll know more when I have him back to the lab. Because he has to say that phrase, this that is, meaning somehow. This, this episode has three r- jobs it has to do for the series. One is the George thing. Yeah. They give George more personality. He's got a house in France and right. stuff. Kath won't shut up about it. <laughs> Two, they want to get uh, Barnaby out of Midsummer. Yeah. So they, this is purposely creating the storyline that gets him out of su- Midsummer. And three, they want to show Jones doing more police work. Mm-hmm. Well, George's way of showing that he has more personality is instead of saying, I'll know more after the autopsy... He says, I'll know more when I've pulled him apart. Pulled him apart. George. In that house, especially. Yeah. With the very neat message board. There's a problem with the auction catalog page. Okay, what's the problem with it? So Barnaby sees it, and he sees the painting, and he thinks, aha, that's it. That's what he's interested in. Now, never mind, there's tons of other things on that page. Yeah, it's that painting. But he decides that it's the painting. So that's the first problem. Is how does he know it's the painting? It's not circled or anything. Oh, oh, sorry. It could be that chair. This is also the episode of named extras who never appear in the episode. Yes. Reg the milkman and the woman at the Kara at the, at the auction auction house. house and Jocelyn. I would fit in this because his office appears, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. But the problem with it is that Tom walks out of the house and gets on the phone to the auction house, I guess. Yeah. And he says, the painting is called Love Beneath the Lilacs by William Graveney. And then he says, 1879. Yeah. And that is not in the auction description. Oh, it's not? The year is not there. Okay. The measurements are there. But not the year. No. Is that a real painting? No. Okay. No. Is that a real guy? uh, Yes. Okay. But he's not a painter. Oh. So William Graveney is a British artist, but he was born in 1904 and died in 1984, and he was a sculptor. He's got works in the Tate. Okay. But he was a sculptor. So why they would have used his name, I don't That's know. That's weird. And Love Beneath the Lilacs isn't a real painting, but it's definitely a reference to real paintings, because Monet had a painting called Beneath the Lilacs. So or, is this uh, Zeus turns into an animal and has sex with somebody? No. Thing? Okay. It's a, a, a woman and two children sitting under lilacs. But that's not what Barnaby says. He says that there's somebody enjoying themselves. Well, okay, so the painting that they have a picture of is showing a man and a woman, like, clearly in love with one another, like, making moony eyes at each other. Yeah. Okay. But the, the real paintings that they're referencing, Monet's is not a romance. Now, Chagall's Lovers in the Lilacs is. Okay. So it could be a reference to either of those. Okay. Is it one of Chagall's, like, Caribbean paintings? Like No. Okay. No. So it's, 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 it's a lilac. It's okay. very British okay. looking. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a real painting. But anyway, it's one of those. Okay. They're making a reference to anyway. His nibs. 
(laughs) (laughs) Then we get two awesome characters. We've got Ruby and Jack. We have a five minute walk to the pub, which Barnaby kind of screws up here. So he calls the auction house. They say the person who sold it is um, Jack Fothergill. And his address is the plow in Casden Ridge on Casden Ridge. Which is actually the name of the real place where the plow is. Right. And is not anywhere in Oxfordshire. No. Nowhere they could be walking if they were actually in Midsummer Worthy. No. So they accidentally mentioned the real name, the real location of the plow. Whoops. Instead of the fictional place. That's okay. But I like Ruby and Jack. Oh, Ruby and Jack are fantastic. I love that every time he tries to lie, she just goes, truth. And he goes, He always reminds me of... Two Ronnies. Yes. So Two Ronnies is a British show from the 70s and 80s, maybe. Maybe it lasted that long, which was like a kind of, I would I don't know much about it, but I'm assuming it was either a sister-brother show of... They're two name? guys. No, but what's his name? The British comedian. He's fat. He has girls who run around there. Benny underwear. Hill? Benny Hill. It's kind of a Benny Hill-like show. So I wonder if it's a competitor. I wouldn't quite say it's like that, but it's definitely a very well-known comedy. Sam Kelly was on it a few yeah. times. He's, he's the actor who plays Jack Fothergill. And he's also in um, several of the... Um, oh, Carry On movies? Carry On movies. Oh, okay. I mean, he's, he's a comedic character actor. That's what he's that known for. Kind so of, it doesn't surprise yeah. me that you recognize him. Yeah. Um, and she's that. Miss Marple. She is. I mean, she's been in tons and tons of things, but yeah. She's the latest Miss Marple. Yeah, she's really good at Miss Marple. Yeah, she is. I like her. I think she's really good. And she's great in this. Ruby and Jack are great characters. Yeah. And Ted, too. The... Ted. (laughs) I love Ted so much. (laughs) This is another one of the episodes that you watch it and you're like, okay, clearly... They watched this episode while writing Hot Fuzz. Yes. <laughs> Not only the fact that one of the characters appears in fu- Hot Fuzz, <laughs> one of the actors yeah. appears in Hot Fuzz, but you you obviously, like the character who talks and mumbles and no one understands him. Yes. It's Ted. Yeah. Totally. I just love how Ted's there first thing in the morning, last thing at night. He's always there. And Jack's like, well, I've got no secrets from Ruby, but Ted, <laughs> you know, you need to go. And why are they keeping it secret that they're... Uh... I don't think they're really keeping it a secret in as much as they're not advertising it because they're discreet because they're older people. I guess. But when when they're kind of cleared or they've decided that, you know, neither of them killed Martin, but if one of them should go down for it... That'll they'll be okay, and they hold hands. It's yeah. so sweet. It's so nice. Ted's in the background. <laughs> so speaking of new toys, Jones also has a new toy that he talks about: the ESDA. Yeah, and just kind of throws it out there like we're supposed to know what that is. Is an electrostatic detection apparatus. Yes. And I will send you a video. I'll put a video in the show notes that shows how it works. It's really interesting, actually. It's highly scientific. It's very old technology, actually. So you take a piece of paper and you put it in basically a Mylar plastic bag and suck all the air out of it, right? 
and then you use this probe to charge it with negative ions. Yeah, they pass a capacitor on it that actually um, imbues it with static. Yeah, or negative ions. Yeah. And then they pour what is essentially Xerox toner. Right, super fine, dusty ink. Which is positively charged. And it settles in the divot, so you can see what was written on the page above it. Yeah. It's it's a kind of interesting technology. It's super interesting. I can't think that it's all useful now when people are writing most stuff on computer. It's not yeah. really going to work with email, but... But the blotter was there. Yes. It reminds me of those, what are they called? Wooly Willy yes. toys that you have at a kit, as yeah. a kid. It's got yeah, the man's yeah. face and the magnetized iron filings on it that yep. you can move around with the little pen. Yep. Also, don't forget Andy in the garage. There's a poster at this point in the cop shop that says rat on a rat. Rat on a rat. Did you see that? I did. I I don't know what it means. Made a note of it. It's bold. It is very bold. The idea is that you're supposed to tell the cops if you find somebody doing a crime like, say, tax evasion. Uh, If somebody's being a rat, you should rat on them. Yeah. I see. So for some reason, they think it's necessary to pull Martin's car apart. Not just search it thoroughly. No, no. But actually take it apart. Yeah. (laughs) And they find a receipt to the Squid's Inn. Now, it's Squid's Inn. Yeah. One Inn. Yeah. And non-possessive squids. it's, It's not an inn. Which is called the Squids. Right. It's Squids Inn, which I don't understand (laughs) what that means. I don't know, but it's a fish shop. It's a fish shop, but okay. What does that mean? The Squids Inn. I don't know. And it's plural squids. Yeah. I thought it was a really well done receipt, though. I did too, except I don't understand why they had to write the customer's name on it. They did. But why? Sometimes you do. You walk up to somebody and say, can I have two pounds of cod? And they say, yes, what's your name? Well, no, they they sell you two pounds of cod. If you notice later that Carol, the world's most oblivious wife. Yes. (laughs) Sells some food to another person who pays in cash. They don't get a receipt. So obviously the Florians asked for a receipt. And this is the photostat of that receipt. You mean it's the carbon copy? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Photostat's a machine, right? Way back when, when we had carbon paper. This is just carbon paper receipt that yeah. you write on like an order slip. I just yeah. don't know why their name would have to be on it. That seemed kind of contrived to me. And we find out that it's in Finicum Bay. Finicum Bay. Which isn't an actual place. No. The place they use for Finnecum Bay is actually Branscombe Bay in East Devon, which is about a two and a half hour car ride from Oxfordshire. But wait, there's a mystery in the cop shop, too. Yeah. There is on the current investigations board a whole thing about car theft. Okay. With DC Fox is the lead investigator. He's, cr- he's credited in the show notes. Oh, he is? Yeah. Who is DC Fox? You see him again. At the end, when they're going to search um, the Florian's house, he is the other guy in the suit. Ah, that's DC Fox. Yeah. Okay. There's a whole bunch of uniforms that pile out of the cars and one guy in a suit. Well, there's a missing 4x4. Four four, oh. And written beside that is, owner could be interested in insurance money. So they have this whole dun, dun, separate dun. case that Fox <laughs> is working on. 
But that board gets overrun later on. Yeah, with bloody pictures of Martin. Oh my gosh, pictures they would never have up in public. <laughs> like, I realize the cop shop has a door and then people can't come in. The public can't come in. But if they were bringing a witness through there, there's bloody Martin. Yeah. like here's, All over the place. Here's a picture of, of like a piece of shot in his skin. Here's his skin kind of flayed open. Here's a bloody face. Here's spatter, spatter, spatter. And then they write around it in red marker that makes it look worse. It's just horrific. By the way, uh, Martin Barrett is played by Grant Masters. Okay. Who I assumed had not been in a lot of things. He's been in a ton of things. Um, most recently, he stars in Await Further Instructions. Yes, which is... A movie uh, we want to watch tonight. A movie like, we want to watch tonight. Yeah, he, and he's all rugged now. He's got yeah. like the goatee he's and everything. He's not an ascot-wearing guy oh, anymore. Oh, no, no, no. no, no. He is. He's rugged. <laughs> I, love, I love that the word chow becomes code for I'm on to you. Yes. Right? So they listen to the Florian's voicemail message and it goes chow at the end and when they leave the florians the first time barnaby looks at him and goes chow (laughs) and richard florian's like oh no so the florians are a couple (laughs) who Uh, bought the fish who bought the fish it's richard and maggie margaret she's like totally nothing but they they obviously have something going on no the most interesting thing about her is she gets the bends Yes. Later. Yes. But they also get led back to Jack at the pub. And find out that the painting that he sold for 97,000 pounds. Was not on his father's probate that they found at Jocelyn's office without Jocelyn being there. Which really pissed off a parking warden. Oh my God! (laughs) That parking warden is about to write them a ticket and Jones basically gives them the two up and out. And then they they even play the little voiceover of the warden going, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Like, why didn't Jones just show him his warrant card? Like, oh, we're cops. See you later, dude. Yeah. It would have been fine. I don't believe it. Don't believe it. <laughs> it's almost like they paid that actor to say a line. They were like, well, we got to get him to say something. We overpaid him now. Yeah. We don't get him to say something. When they're talking about blackmail with Jack, they mentioned Dangeld. Yeah, this is Tom looking all literary. Yeah. Right? Because if you don't know what that's a reference to, um, you've got to think back to like your eighth grade English class because it's a Kipling poem called Danegeld. Oh, see, I have a different version of what Danegeld is. Well, it's a reference to King Ethelred the Unready and how he paid Vikings off. Yeah, the Vikings show up. You clearly know that you're going to get beat. Mm-hmm. And the Vikings are like, you could pay us. And, and we'll we go won't, away. We'll go away. Yeah. Which is, of course, like all blackmail, the worst thing to get into. Yeah. Because they show up the next day and go, well, you could pay us again. Yeah, I guess you'll have to pay us more. Yeah, and it's called Danegeld because they were paying the Danes yeah. in gold yeah. right, to go away. And, of course, they always came back. But Kipling's poem is called Danegeld. Yeah. And it takes that example and then uses it for a larger kind of um, political issue. Okay. So, and and Tom even cites a line from it. So let let me just read you two tiny stanzas here and you'll understand, okay? 
And again, this is like two out of like six stanzas of this poem. It's always the temptation for a rich and lazy nation to puff and look important and to say, though we know we should defeat you, we have not the time to meet you. We will therefore pay you cash to go away. And that is called paying the Dane Geld. But we've proved it again and again that if once you've paid him the Dane Geld, you never get rid of the Dane. Yeah. We have not the time to meet you. We will therefore pay you cash to go away. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I could beat you up, but I'm busy. Have some cash. That's a nice word for uh, don't hurt us, please. Yes. Yeah, so that's uh, blackmail money. It's Dane Geld. Yep. Yes. Back Tom in the looking morgue, very, very smart there. Back in the morgue, I thought we were going to see George's office. Yeah, so you think it's going to be George's office. You're like, oh, this is going to be interesting. I wanted it to be George's office so bad. No. But it, it's not. It's not even really a lab. lab thing. It's like a closet with some equipment. Yeah. They have a centrifuge just sitting on a shelf. Yeah. Looking like it's about to be run. Like, shouldn't that be... In the lab? In a place that's sterile? And maybe inside the morgue personnel only sign? Yeah, maybe. That's clearly (laughs) just printed on a printer and tacked on the door? Yes. (laughs) Poor George just wants to be in France. And Tom just keeps reminding him. Kath will not shut up about it. (laughs) Joyce is so jealous. (laughs) And Tom's like, let's go to the English seaside. And she's like, it's crazy here. Like you'd think, you know, if George and Kath have a place in France that maybe when they're not using it, they might let the Barnabys rent it. You think? But no, we're too jealous to go rent your place. And we find out the shot has all sorts of different size pellets. Yeah, because somebody's making homemade shotgun shells. And that somebody is Peter. Yes. Which he also uses to shoot rabbits. Well, who's Peter? How do how do we know who he is? He works at the Squid Inn. Yes, Squid's Inn. The Florians bought two fish pounds from. of fish from two kilograms of fish. <laughs> two kilograms. It's expensive fish. Is that it's a lot of fish? Twenty six forty. Woo! Maybe it was lobster. Maybe lobster. Lobster. All I know is we get to see Jones and coveralls. Yes. Yes. And he also goes to see Sir John. But wait a minute. I think Jones and coveralls is important. Okay. It's important because this is Jones getting his hands dirty, literally and figuratively. Yes, he washes them with the the grease. He, oh, the sound. Oh, the sound is bad. Don't listen to that scene with headphones on. It's a little ASRM. It is a little. It's like Mr. Toad eating. To have used it. And the only people who can tell us what he knew about them are the victims themselves. No point asking them. They won't say anything. Precisely. So whatever it was they were up to... They could have used the same sound as Mr. Toad eating. But the fact that he's got coveralls on, he's willing to get dirty... He looks completely comfortable doing it. Yep, he's even got a little dirt on his forehead. Yeah. But then, you you think, Jones is the man. Jones is willing to do the the hands-on work. Yeah. But then he dries his hands on the dirtiest towel I've ever seen and puts all the grease right back on. <laughs> Who would leave that towel around? Like, Jones, there's a clean one right there. <laughs> Clearly they shot it a couple of times. And all the ladies are disappointed because when he takes the coveralls off, he's just got them on over his clothes. Yeah. But he's got his own locker, it looks like. He does. He's a busy guy. Maybe he does part-time work at the Maybe. car shop. Anyway... They sure did pull that car apart. 
Let's go see Do- Sir John. And we know about Sir John because of Reg the Milkman, who seems to know everything about everybody. Except how to appear in this episode. Does not appear on screen. <laughs> but they should be paying him money. You know how they pay confidential informants? Well, I don't Reg know. Reg the Milkman should be getting a cut. I don't know why uh, Martin has to blackmail Ruby, because I'm sure Reg would tell him all the dirt, too. Reg is an honest milkman, Mark. Okay. He wouldn't take Dane Geld. So Tom and Joyce go to the seaside. Yes. I have to assume that he told her that he was going there to do some work. He didn't completely fib to her because when he says he's got to go look at some place, give me a half an hour, she doesn't act like, oh, you know. Yeah. But the scene with them setting up their picnic on the windiest spot in the universe. Yes. The newspaper. Yeah. I love that scene. I love it. He opens it up. The wind catches the newspaper and he goes like crawling after it. He looks all athletic and awesome doing that. But there's a piece of fishing line connected yeah. to that newspaper. Yeah. Did is. you see it? Yeah. <laughs> I had to look real close because we're nerds like that, guys. That's what we're like. We're like, hey, I wonder if that happened to blow out and that was just a really good take. I don't or think if they made that happen. I don't think it's windy at all. I think they have a big fan. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, Joyce's hair is moving around. There's clearly actual wind, but it could well, be coming from a fan. Well, what I am amazed by is that she's like, oh, there's the sea. And they do the shot from where they are, the point of view shot from there. And the ocean's gigantic. They're like five feet away from it. She's like, if we could see it from here, what can't you see from here? France. <laughs> Yeah, because they're on the wrong part of the coast to see France. Yeah, so They'd I'd be more likely to see... See the Channel Islands. Yeah. So. <laughs> or Gibraltar or something from there. Uh, but I, I just love that newspaper and him diving after it. Yeah. I just I like when Barnaby is athletic and w- later when he's wading into the ocean with his pants rolled up. I like seeing him like that. Yes. I think it's fun. Even if they did have to tie a piece of fishing line to the newspaper and yank it out of the basket... It's fun. Yes. Jones's approach to Waverly the first time he talks to him is special. It is. Especially bad. I don't know. I think it's brilliant. Oh, I don't know. You know? I'm more like Barnaby. I'm more like you should have uh, waited in a little softer. I, ah. See, I think there's a reason he does it the way he does it. And, and, and we are led down this garden path, too, of maybe for once, John is playing the old boys club card. Yeah. Tom. Tom, sorry. And maybe he thinks that Waverly is above suspicion, and maybe he doesn't deserve it. And so Jones is going to prove it to himself one way or the other, and he's not going to pull any punches. And so he does this whole bait and switch. My boss is so good at this, putting everybody at their ease. So what are they blackmailing you for? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised there wasn't mention of Masons here. With the old boys network and the police and... Tom would never be a Mason. Oh, I know. We know that. So For sure. So now that we've got to Waverly, we can talk about Paul Freeman. Okay. Balak. <laughs> you didn't shout at that time. No. He's played by Paul Freeman, mm-hmm. who's been in a ton of things, including Hot so Fuzz. So many Indiana things. Indiana Jones. But uh, two of my favorites is that he was in a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the first movie... Oh, I in '95, and he played Ivan Ooze. Ivan Ooze. He's yeah. very good at bad guys of all kinds. Yeah, he is. He also played Moriarty in um, uh, Without a Clue. That's the 1988 Sherlock Holmes movie with um, Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I've seen that. It's so good. 
But Paul Freeman is our, has Mark seen it for this week? Are you ready? Okay. Has Mark seen this bad movie? This movie made in 1997. Okay. An international spy team, spy teams up with an arms dealer to escape from a penal colony and rescue his family from a terrorist. Starring Paul Freeman, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dennis Rodman, and Mickey Rourke. Wow. Double team. Double team. Dennis Rodman has green hair in this movie. I remember seeing posters for this. I don't think I ever saw a trailer, but I remember posters. I'm not going to fault you for not seeing This movie is bad. The trailer is bad. It's kind of that late 90s trying to catch the last breath of the Lethal Weapon Die Hard series movie. Yeah. yeah, and Dennis Rodman was starting to be a little controversial and date Madonna and whatever. Yeah. Um, it's when he f- got his first face tattoo and stuff. And so uh, green hair and everything. He's Dennis trying- Rodman, a man clearly ahead of his time. Oh, yeah. Way ahead of everybody else. <laughs> Except for that whole Korea thing. North Korea yeah. thing. That was I, a wrong term. I don't understand that either. But Paul Freeman plays a villain in that movie, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've never seen that movie. But it's not as good as... Ivan Ooze in the Ivan Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> so that's one point for me. Mark hasn't seen it. He's just he's just so good in in Raiders. Mm-hmm. He plays the French archaeologist who is kind of in bed with the Nazis, but kind of out for himself. Yeah, he's very suave. Yeah, he's he is the exact great foil for uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. Meanwhile, Barnaby is on the coast meeting Hatchard. Yes. Peter Hatchard, who... They become best friends immediately. I thought was a bad guy from the moment I saw him. The first time I saw this episode, I was like, don't make friends with him. Don't make friends with him. It's too easy making friends with him. Just because he was a policeman for eight whole years in another country doesn't mean you can trust him. And I don't know if this is true, right? But we have this belief that once you're a policeman, you're a policeman for life. So as soon as somebody says, oh, I was a policeman for eight years, I'm like, well, then what and went why wrong? did you stop? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially in, in today's news cycle, you don't assume that somebody who was formerly a policeman is still an honorable person. As an other character in another episode would say, mm-hmm. once a copper, always a copper, <laughs> with a copper's nose. A copper's nose. So uh, Peter Hatcher is played by Dermot Crowley, who is my other favorite actor in this episode. He's also been in gazillion things. A gazillion things. He was in The Death of Stalin, which yep. if you haven't seen it, is it's so funny. Fantastic. It's so good. Yep. Um, he was in Star Wars Return of the Jedi. In 83. Okay. Um, He was uh, in Son of Pink Panther. I'm not going to say that's a good movie. So Son of Pink Panther is the new one. In 93. It's not really new. No, but it's with, uh, it's not Clouseau. No, it's his son. Yeah. Who is the cop. And who plays him? I don't remember his name. But Dermot Crowley has long hair. Ooh. (laughs) Ooh. But he was also an octopusy. Yes, he was. He played Camp. Comp. K-A-M-P. Comp. In Octopussy. In Octopussy. Anyway, Peter is not to be trusted. I don't care that he was a cop. No. And being a police... Well, they look up his record on the computer. But apparently it's not a complete record. Yes, because it's only his police record. It doesn't mention, oh, that he went to jail for 25 years. 
Yeah, it fails to mention that. It Why also does it has, fail to mention that, considering he was arrested when he was still a policeman? It also has an Earl that would never work. Plus, why are they looking up stuff on the internet about ex-policemen? Why would that be on the internet? Uh, I don't know. And when you say Earl, you mean URL. Yeah. For people who are not as Yeah, like it has spaces and all sorts yeah. of weird characters in it. No. So we know, we find out later that, that he was working with Martin Barrett to smuggle people. Yeah. And was taking money under the table. He's a white slaver. Yeah. And that's, that's not just like on the take. No, he, he was a bad dude. Bad, bad dude. Yeah. But now fish. Yep. He's just too helpful. That's why I don't like him from the get go. He's too willing. He's too helpful. He calls Tom on his phone. I wonder why he calls Tom a couple of times. I'm like, if you didn't call Tom here, it wouldn't have mattered and you wouldn't have been noticed. Well, it kind kind of would have because Peter's whole MO is to frame the Florians. Yes. So when he sees them heading out on their That's boat, true. he's like, hey, they're out on their boat. Which to Tom just means, cool, we can break into their house. You know who else is? <laughs> yes. You know who else is useful to Tom? Ruby. No, this person named Cully. Oh, gosh, Cully. <laughs> Cully, can you step away from your nice friends who are beside the hugging frogs and come and talk about one of your awful friends? Because Cully obviously has a history of befriending wayward girls who later become the bad worst people. people are Cully's <laughs> friends. He finds her at the bar Venice. Which... Vinici. And she's talking to four, three other girls. Who look women, perfectly normal. Who look perfectly normal, drinking their white wine. Yeah. Tom comes up, does the classy thing. He buys everybody a drink and then says, come and talk to me about your shitty friends. Yes. <laughs> and then get, you can go back to where the frogs are hugging. We get this long pan <laughs> of this statue of two frogs in an embrace. What? On two legs. I'm glad you wanted to know about that, too, because I'm like, WTF, hugging frogs. <laughs> if you didn't notice it, it, it's at 40 minutes and 11 seconds in the By episode. By the way, it, it's in the name of the episode for sure. I already put hugging frogs in the title space. <laughs> so I went looking for the two hugging frogs. Okay. Because I wanted to know. If there was actually a bar Vinici in the UK somewhere, that had and if frogs. it has two hugging frogs, and it doesn't, there is no bar Vinici. Okay. There is one in Sweden. Okay. But I did find, I did find the frogs. Where are the frogs? They are in Kauai, in Hawaii. What? Yes. In front of a furniture store called twofrogshugging.com. <laughs> They can't be the same statue. Um, it's identical. Then they must mass produce them and sell them. I couldn't find that anywhere. Oh, my God. We, we must find out about this. So either there is some mass production of this statue that I couldn't find, and they both have statues. There is a statue in a pub garden somewhere in the UK. Okay, so first of all, first of all, if you get a picture of you and the two hugging frogs 
we will put your name in the show notes and talk about you in the episode for we'll, sure. We'll name an episode after you. We'll name an episode after you. <laughs> this is Dave, the man who found the frogs. Two, if you live in Hawaii On or the- Oxfordshire yeah. <laughs> and know of a place that has the hugging frog statue. I'm telling you, twofrogshugging.com. It's a furniture store in Kauai, and they have that statue. I have linked to a picture of it. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm making you a promise right now. I am emailing them and asking them about the statue. Okay. I did a reverse image search and everything to see if I could find it anyplace else. I didn't, except okay. a couple of, of blogs that people wrote where they posted photos of that statue in front of that furniture store. I'm going to message them because I've got to find out how a furniture. I can't even believe this sentence is happening in English. How did a furniture store in Kauai end up with a statue that was in Midsummer Murders in the garden of a bar in the UK somewhere? Yes. In Oxfordshire. That, that is a sentence that should not be. Like, was it there first? Like, do you ship it? <laughs> it's like limestone. It's huge. It's like. Human size. I was getting ready to say it's life size. No, no. Frogs aren't that big, thank God. <laughs> and they certainly don't walk on two legs. Woo, that would be creepy. Um, I'm sure that's a hammer movie somewhere. No, it's human size. And they are like cheek to cheek with their arms around each other. So anyway, that's the frogs. Woo, weird frogs. So anyway, Cully knows the girl from the very first. So she calls up Haley and says, I know I haven't talked to you in years. I ran into you like a month ago and we just said hi. But now I'd like you to come over for dinner tonight at my parents' house because my dad wants to interrogate you over rabbit. By the way, Jones is dreamy. You can come over too. Why would Haley, who was in the house when Martin was shot and was colluding with him to blackmail people, agree to come to a cop's house for dinner. And not just say... I got plans. I got plans. She must be incredibly stupid. Or Tom's cooking of the rabbit is just that good. La pain au la sauvage. I could have cooked. <laughs> Joyce. Joyce is so pissed that, I know. that Tom cooks. And then she does nothing but slag off his food. Yeah. It's a little dry and flavorless for me. So what we don't know at this point, while they're spitting the shot out of the rabbit is that Joyce got those two rabbits from uh, Carol Hatchard. Who is the most oblivious wife ever. Behind Peter's back. Yes. So Peter, who lives at the sea, shoots rabbits. Yes. And then his wife gives them away to people. We only ever see him at the shop once. The rest of the time he's doing other shit. Yeah. But I think I would tell somebody, hey, these were shot with shot. Shot with shot. Um, so look out for it. Like if you eat quail or something from a shoot, you know there could be metal in it. Yeah. I don't know what they do to get it all out. Magnet, metal detector. If it's lead, it wouldn't stick to a magnet, would it? No. Uh, I remember eating pigeons that my brother killed and picking shot out of them. That would hurt your teeth, wouldn't it? You bite down on one of those? Yeah, it's not that bad. It wouldn't make your feelings go... <laughs> I only ever had it once. So. But it looks like he knows what he's doing. It does. He's got an apron on and everything. He does. And we're reminded of the time when this was made because twice Jones makes the jokes, I wish I had a camera. Yes. And though he does have a mobile phone, it doesn't, doesn't have, have a, a camera, camera on it. <laughs> Nobody says that anymore now. But what does Jones actually doing there? Um, I think he's there just to hear Haley's answers. I guess. And because... 
I don't know. Why does he come to Tom's house in the morning and then they drive away in separate cars? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, they're going to catch Waverly's blackmailer. Yes. They're going to stake out the bridge. Yes. And they because, got- so, Sir John gets more notes. Yes. While he has his dogs. Did you notice the dog's name? He's names? got a lot of dogs. Did you notice the dog's names? No. Lucy and Snuffer. There's three of them. Yeah, the third dog is not named. Unnamed. <laughs> Unnamed dog. Lucy and Snuffer. He's very good with the dogs. Oh, yeah. They're, and they're nice dogs. They're very good dogs. They don't attack Tom and Jones when they come in to save Waverly when he's OD'd. Yes. So the, he's being blackmailed again. He finally tells the cops, which is the right thing to do. Yes. And so they're going to stake out this bridge where the blackmailer who could possibly be the murderer, mm-hmm. but isn't, uh, is going to take the money from them. And they've got backup. Backup. Hanging around in the woods. They do. My question is, why didn't they see her when she put the bag there? Uh, with the rope with on the it. With the rope on it? <laughs> and parked her motorcycle underneath. Yeah. Where is she in her red leather outfit? Okay. I know this show has amateur criminals. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to do a crime... Which this is. Blackmail is a crime. You're going to take the money and take off, right? That's the deal. Mm-hmm. You're going to go down the railway track and with your motorbike and get away. Right. Do you not want to appear unassuming? A little anonymous. A little anonymous. Like maybe black. She black has outfit, on. Dark outfit. Bright red leathers. Yeah. With a bright red helmet. Yeah. On a bright red bike. Yeah. It might as well have a big light on it that says black bailer. Mm. Yep. Like wear a big coat and some jeans. I just don't know why she parks her motorcycle under there. Yeah. I don't. Why didn't they get her when she put the bag there? <laughs> Especially if she was already in her red leathers when she did it. Oh, I don't know. Anyways, there's. But the rope is smart. Yeah. There's a rumble strip. And she gets... Well, they put out the spike, the spike strip. The spike strip. strip yeah. And we find out that it's Haley. Because And then she's, Tom turns on her like nobody's business. Because Waverly tries to kill himself because he's so disappointed. Now, again, Waverly has done nothing wrong. No. He's just so let down by Haley that he thinks his, his life is a failure. He's lost in faith fact, in human he, in kind. Fact, he's done nothing but right things mm-hmm. his whole life and lost his wife. Yep. And then, boy, Tom has no time for her. Not only that, but when when they know Waverly is off the danger list and she says she wants to talk to them again and they meet her in the canteen, he gives her the cold shoulder. And lies to her to f- screw her up. Yeah. He says that Waverly's dead. Yeah. Or that he's at least too far gone to save. He will die. Yeah. But he puts his glasses down on his nose. Oh. And says, I'd be happy if I never had to talk to you again. I mean, he lays it down. It is mean Barnaby. Mean Barnaby. But he's not mean to Ruby, who's a kleptomaniac. No. They're kind of nice to her, even though she's got a room full of stuff that she's stolen. When they find Sir John and he's passed out because he always killed himself. I said in my notes that they play slappy slap in the back of the car. Because <laughs> <laughs> they are slapping the crap out of him. Stay with us, Sir John. Slap. Wake up. Slap. <laughs> oh, you know what we've missed? We completely skipped over Ruby and Jack with the shotgun in the kitchen. <laughs> 
So Ruby finds Jack's shotgun in the kitchen, which is another thing that his father gave him. It falls out of the broom closet. And she's pointing it all over the place and then slams it on the floor and it goes off. He says, you shouldn't point that even if it's not loaded. Can uh, you, can you imagine Jones get the get in the call for that? <laughs> what? And who? Oh, my gosh. I'm surprised they can get into the kitchen because the bar looks pretty full. And if a shotgun went off in the kitchen, you'd think everybody would be crowding around the door to see what happened. Also, okay. Meanwhile, Ted's in the corner. <laughs> okay, so this this is Ted hiding stuff in the kitchen. Jack hiding stuff in the kitchen of his pub. Yeah. Which is busy, though there's no one in the kitchen. Yeah, and the fryer's not going or anything. No, no. Apparently it's a non-food serving day. I guess. But it's a Purdy shotgun, which we've heard of before. They are very expensive, very very nice guns. And I don't think the Purdy's would be happy to think that Midsummer's making it look like if you just slam their guns on the floor, they go off. The other thing that I always think about then is when she slams her... The gun on the floor and it goes off, the barrel would heat up and burn her. Yeah, but she drops it pretty fast. Yeah, but when if she's holding onto it when it goes off, her hand would get burned. I don't want to be a downer, but that scene could be really different. Well, it could. (laughs) You want to talk about explosive squibs? (laughs) Ruby's head. But I just, I just love them. Like she's like losing her mind. She's like, Jack, you get back here, because she thinks she's found the murder weapon. Yeah. And he's like, I didn't even know that was in there. Did you put it there? Did you kill him? Like, no. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, they just don't want it to be the other one, except they just keep seeing there's evidence of the other one having done it. Oh, they're so cute though. They are. But they have, they have a an alibi, and it's one another, because as Tom says, if slap came to tickle. They yes. have an alibi. They have an alibi. Because those two are slapping and tickling each other all night. Apparently. All night long, baby. What did you notice about the hospital where Waverly is? Oh, there was something about They the- take him there after his overdose. And Barnaby and Tr- and Jones are just sitting there. Right. There's something weird. And we end up seeing F- Florian because he's brought his wife there because she- he thinks he's- she's got decompression sickness. Well, they follow no procedures of... HIPAA? HIPAA. Yeah. Because t- Tom's like, tell me why this person's here and then don't tell them I asked you. Well, he is a policeman. Yeah. He'll get away with a little bit. Okay. What I noticed is that the words are named after flowers. That's right. And that's a common theme amongst hospitals in this show. So you've got magnolia triage. Magnolia we've seen before. Yes. Magnolia is also what they call white paint. Yeah. In the UK. You paint your walls in magnolia. And then there's the rosemary ward, which apparently is in the same direction as the toilets. Yes. So it says rosemary toilets. Yeah. But what I thought was interesting is that Jones is at the coffee machine and he sees Florian talking to one of the sisters, the nurses, to find out what room his wife is in. And he's... He sees them, they're behind him, right? So he's looking at one of the domed mirrors that you see around the corner. He's looking up and he sees the two of them talking and um, she says that his wife is in Rosemary Ward and there's a sign visible in the mirror that says Rosemary pointing one direction. And he says, oh, that way. And she says, no, it's the other way around the corner. My, they made that more difficult than so it needed to be. She gives them directions the opposite way of all the signs in the hospital. So now I've just got this image of, of, 
uh, Richard Florian just wandering around looking for his wife. Well, maybe that's why they have so much time to talk to the to the, the ward sister to yeah, find out whether sister. she's got. So he thinks she's got the depr- um, decompression sickness, yes. which we call the bends. Do you know why it's called the bends? Because the people would bend over when they uh, came up from. Isn't it originally when they were building maybe the Brooklyn Bridge or some bridge uh, where they came, they took elevators down to where they were putting the fittings in for the bridge and they came up too fast. And so when they got out of this elevator thing, they would be all bent over because of pain. I don't know about the bridge reference, but they did bend over in pain only because the bubbles settle in your joints And so it hurts to bend, but you're also in incredible pain, so you want to bend up. Oh. It's it's basically if your body was a soda that had been shaken. Yes. That's kind of what it's like. Yeah. And I wasn't sure, because we see Peter diving to the same wreck that they've been diving to. Yes. Well, no, sorry. We see Peter in a wetsuit. Then we see somebody else diving. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but he's supposedly diving to the yes. same depth that they've been diving to. Because the, the two people don't have the same build. No. But it is a baggy wetsuit. Yeah, it is. <laughs> for deeper dives. Um, and first of all, he's dumb for diving alone. You just don't do you that. You don't do that. <laughs> Especially with two guys up top who have no idea what you're doing. We're off to get fags and booze. Yeah. We're just going to hang out up here and twiddle our thumbs yeah. uh, while this other guy is diving. But um, so he's diving to the same depth they did. And, and, and yeah, he does stay under there a pretty long time. We got to get the impression that he's under there for like half an hour, yeah. a pretty long time. So I looked at a nautical map around the coast where Branscombe is. And the average depth is about 85 feet. That's quite a bit more than I thought. Um. You can go down to 20 feet and not get any decompression issues. You don't have to make any decompression stops coming up. Yeah, I know that. But if you go down to, to um, anywhere between 40 feet and 100 feet, it's suggested that you make stops on the way up. Yeah. That you stop every 10 feet or so. Yeah. And Isn't wait. It- 10 feet for 10 minutes? Isn't there some rule of thumb like that? Uh, no, that's only if you're super, super deep. Okay. But if if you're anywhere above like 40 feet, they suggest that when you're coming up, you take occasional pauses. And the pauses are longer the deeper you've been. Okay. Right? So she could have got decompression sickness. So she could have. At 85 feet. Yeah. Yeah. But they say that this ship that they're salvaging they're trying to they're getting this treasure off of is called the harlequin okay i have another question well can i can i tell you about this ship though real yeah, quick okay because they say that it it broke up on a reef in 1846 and it's not in the admiral's registry of shipwrecks shipwrecks yep but there is a ship called the harlequin that broke up on a reef in 1846. Oh, okay. It's not there. It's not there, but it's somewhere else. It's somewhere else. It's it's, it's weird to me when they take <laughs> things that are kind of real and change them unnecessarily. Yeah. I, I don't know. But what they're doing is not illegal. No, that's theirs. According to the Treasure Trove Act of 1996, yes. Th- so that that water would be UK water. No. So it's not the the property of another country or nope. anything like that. 
because it's so close to the coast and it's clearly UK water, it's as if they found it on land. It doesn't really matter. Which they would get to keep. It's not owned by somebody else. Yeah. Which is the only time there's counterclaims to it. Yeah. It definitely fits the definition of treasure according to the act. So they would be given market value for it um, by a museum. And if, if it wasn't worthy of any, they, they get to keep it. Yeah. The only reason I would think that they might be keeping it secret is they don't want anybody else to dive that wreck. But how did they know about it if it's not in the Admiral's list of wrecks? Well, you see, there's a long backstory. Backstory about oil companies. Which <laughs> I don't nothing to do with this at nothing all. Nothing to do with this episode. Yet, in the Florian's house, there is art, both three-dimensional sculptural art. Oh, they have a scale model of an oil rig. And a picture of an oil rig. Like a detail. Like, why did they go through all that stuff to get the Florians related to oil companies that he just quit anyway? I think just to explain that they would be experienced enough to do this, just the two of them. Maybe. But why would he quit the oil company when he found this treasure? Like... I, because if he punched somebody in a board meeting, they would go, well, we're not going to check to see if there's any oil there then. I I don't know. He wanted to scare them off from that spot. I guess. But when they make the suggestion that there's oil off the coast, Tom's like, no. I'm like, (laughs) are you a geologist? (laughs) Now, I, I skipped over something there and I bet you I know what it is. What? Wendy. Is Wendy what you wanted to go back to? No, no. I wanted to go back to the oil thing. Ah, okay. What's Wendy? Wendy is the mysterious girl at the desk in the cop shop. What? Wendy is sitting in the room with Tom and Jones when they're in the office. Okay. She's sitting at the other desk. Oh, yes. And Jones talks to her. And about her. Yes. She's the one who finds out that uh, Martin was born in Australia. Yes. And she does it by putting her through her, quote, immigration mangle. (laughs) (laughs) To find out he was born in Australia and then lived in Taiwan, a place that may or may not have trees. (laughs) Okay, Taiwan has trees. I checked. (laughs) <laughs> Not if Bartlett was successful. He was selling trees. Barrett, sorry. Um, I've never been through an immigration mangle as, <laughs> as an immigrant. I've never been through an immigration mangle. Well, Wendy's got one. Watch out for her. <laughs> wonder if she's Fox's sergeant. She seems to be doing a lot of work for Tom yeah. and Jones. So I think she's a detective constable or a constable. Who has an office job. Well, then who's Fox's sergeant? I don't know. Jeez. You just want to know all about Fox. I do. Yeah. And this, the thing, you already joked about it, about the Florians on their boat. Yeah. When Tom and Jones are waiting for Peter to come up. That is a huge boat. And it is a big, flat ocean. How do they only see them when they're like, right up on top of them? I was like, wait a minute. How can you be surprised that they're there? The Florians are surprised that Tom and Jones are there in a boat. And Tom and Jones are surprised that the Florians are there. Like, And they're, they say we're off to France to get illegal drugs and al- uh, cigarettes and alcohol. Not illegal, duty-free. Now they're buying way more than they should to bring back into the country. Obviously with the intent to sell them. But why tell cops you're doing that? <laughs> 
Because if we're saying we're doing a little illegal thing, they won't think we're up to a bigger illegal thing. But they're not doing an illegal thing! <laughs> they're also not in a submarine. I don't know why they don't see them coming from a million miles away. They've got a big old boat, too! They do! That is a big-ass boat! Okay, I have a really good job at the oil company. So much so, I can afford this boat and the place down in by the sea. They rent that. Still, we, <laughs> we don't rent places they by rent the sea. They rent it year-round. Yeah. It's not like they rent it by the week. <laughs> and I'm going to get into a fist fight to get myself fired from this job so, so I, I can, can get some trinkets and some cigarettes and alcohol. Well, he gets a golden parachute settlement from the oil company, but which you assume is, is quite a bit of money. But still. But they got a big old sneaky boat. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like one of those big like catamaran kind of boats that has the big raised area in the middle. Yeah. I almost want Tom and, and Jones to like look up and the boat is over them or something. <laughs> like, whoa, where did that come from? You Florians are so sneaky. <laughs> Tom... And Jones don't notice them. And then the Florians don't notice, notice them. And they're right beside each other. <laughs> they can get them in the same camera shot. They're that close. I understand the ocean's big, but it's not that big. And, and you think when um, Barnaby and Jones and Peter are heading out to see that they're in kind of a bigger boat because you've seen them in that little dinghy before, right? <laughs> When they go and try to break into the Florian's boat. The, the name of the episode was almost Barnaby in a dinghy. <laughs> but when I see Barnaby and Jones in the little boat and the Florian's pull up, I just think of Splash. Yes. When Tom Hanks is in that boat looking for Daryl Hannah and he's like, no, Mr. Fat Jack, not the little boat. Because <laughs> Mr. Fat Jack is like the size of the little boat. <laughs> yes. And they're just sitting there, and the Florians come up in their big behemoth sailboat. Uh, sorry. All I know is I, I got great satisfaction out of seeing Cully and Joyce dig through the trash. <laughs> okay. And it was like a joke. It was like, it was like okay, and there's the next scene. <laughs> We're going to have Cully and Joyce go through the trash. And you can see the actresses looking at each other going, what? What? <laughs> oh, here it is in this mangled piece of meat. They don't even have to be in character to go, we have to do what? <laughs> <laughs> but and no, it, it looks like in the episode that Barnaby just calls them up and says, can you go through the trash? And they're like, yes, sir. I, no, I don't think so. I think Kelly's rolling her eyes like, what do you, what do you want? <laughs> And they do it in the weirdest way, too. I thought they did it in a they, they did it in a smart way. They did it in a smart way, but not the first way I would have thought of doing it. How would you have done it? Just open the bag and start going through this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you would you would spread it out and get a metal detector. <laughs> no, I, I, want, I want the neighbors looking out the window going. What are they doing? At least they're wearing their big, their big, uh, what do they call them? Um, they don't call them daisy gloves, sunflower gloves. They call them a yellow flower. The rubber gloves in England, I they call them by what, a yellow flower. I don't know what they call them. Oh, somebody's going to tell me. Anyway, they've got their, their yellow Playtex gloves on. Yeah, so they don't get on a... Which I'm impressed they've got two pairs. Yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, not only do they have to dig through the trash, but they have to like dig through the leftover pieces of meat and then put the BBs on a little tape on a little plate. As soon as they've got two BBs that are different sizes, they're done. That's all they needed to know. Yeah. The Florians do such a good job of being smug and then being like, you found a gun? What? Now, wait a minute. I'm done being smug now. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this is really bad. It's not my gun. No. And never mind. We're going to search your house, but we'll make sure everything goes back just the way we put it. Yeah, that's not how cops work. Excuse me, sir. I've just taken a razor blade to their couch and found something. <laughs> <laughs> like, how did Peter get it there without doing that, too? Uh, I don't know. Was it actually just under the couch, but Constable Razorblade just decided to just slice through it instead of lifting it up? Like... Fox, your constable just destroyed this couch. It's a rare antique and he just sliced through it and found nothing. <laughs> oh no, sorry. In my notes, mm, dead rabbit bits. Never mind that when they find that gun and the shells, everybody just touches it. With their bare hands. Touchy, touchy, touch, touch, touch. Touch the barrel, touch the trigger, touch the shells, touch, touch. Like, dudes, take a tip well, I'm glad from Chloe and Joyce I'm, and put on some gloves. I'm glad they didn't drop it on the floor because there'd be dead constable all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Splat! And then Tom is so fancy free, decides to go wading in the ocean. And I think, oh, that's so cute. And the, But did you notice that he gets absolutely soaked? Oh, he is so wet. There's a wave that comes up and like hits him. It's It sprays up so high, he has to turn his head. Yeah. <laughs> like your your feet aren't the only wet things here, dude. You are soaked. And we find out that Peter is the killer. Yeah, even the steam-powered computer at Fencombe could look that up. <laughs> That's what Tom says. I love that. Yep. Because you know they have like... Two policemen in that entire place. Okay. Now, we make fun of this, that places in England are not as far apart as people say they are. How far is it from Oxfordshire to the ocean? To the nearest ocean? Yeah. I don't know. I do know from Oxfordshire to Branscombe, which is where Finnecombe is, yeah. is two and a half hour drive. Oh my gosh. They would have had to stay overnight. Twice. Twice. Two and a half hours. <laughs> They're not even going through London or anything. Oh. Now, if they took the train, it could take up to 12 hours. How does a train <laughs> take 12 hours? I don't think there's a direct route and there's okay. a lot of waiting around. I looked that up because I thought, you know, maybe maybe it's fast by train, but slow by car. Well. But we, it's not. Well, we know. Okay. <laughs> this is the problem I have with the episode. Okay. <laughs> this? The problem I have with the episode is it's related to this. In the flashback, when Peter hears his voice. Okay? When he hears Martin talking to Carol. Yes. Peter doesn't, Martin doesn't see Peter. No. So he doesn't know he exists anywhere other than in prison in Taiwan. Taiwan. Or Hong Kong. Hong I understand Kong. that this would be upsetting to Peter. Mm hmm. Okay. But upsetting enough that he gets his gun, he drives two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And in that two and a half hours, he doesn't have a moment of, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe I have a perfectly good life and I shouldn't risk it. Yes. Maybe I have a wife who is completely oblivious to everything that I could do all sorts of other stuff and get away with. 
maybe I should do that instead. Yeah. She's going to bed, so it's 10, 11 o'clock at night. He gets back to the seaside at 2 and 3 in the morning with no explanation. Maybe he said he went out fishing. Uh, I, I just think a person like Peter, who was a cop at one point in time, would be smarter than to go off on revenge. He would on be a smarter. Five-hour drive. He would be smarter than to say he'd never seen Martin before. Yeah. He would have just said, you know, I do remember seeing him around. Yeah, he asked about them. That's all I did with them. Yeah. Carol, did you see this guy? Oh, that's right. He asked about where the Florians live. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Never mentioned he was a cop. Never did anything else. The Florians could get framed and that would be it. Yep. Yep. And he could he could get away with it. Absolutely. But he wanted to insinuate himself in the investigation by admitting that he had been a cop. Yeah. And then he just he's just screwed up. I don't like that he drives for two and a half hours. And it's just too far. Like no one's that angry. And to find Martin's little house, even though it's called High Chimneys. It's a yeah. How does he know that Martin's going to be there? And how does he know he's going to come to the window? And like, what is his plan? He got lucky, I guess. And he knew somebody else was there for dinner. Yeah. So you think he would have said, you know what? I'm going to come back another night. I've waited this long. I'm going to come back another night. I know where he is. He lives alone. Yep. I'll come back. I'll make it look like a suicide. Yeah. He could have done a better job. Especially since... I know, I know what you mean by you drive two and a half hours, you talk yourself out of it. I, I understand what you mean by that. But I also understand that this guy's not taking ownership of his own behavior and not saying, I did a bad thing and I deserve to be punished. He never does. He's the worst person in the world. He's like, I went to prison, but I knew the right people to get out. You trafficked in human beings. Yes. And managed to buy your way out of prison after only five years. He lost his wife. He's never seen his kids again. That's painful. And I can see how he would ha- he would keep that pain. And that would make it enough that when this guy shows up out of nowhere, that it would set him off. All I can see is Carol But I Carol still think he's smart enough to do it better. Carol in the background going, wife? Kids? What? What? He says he was in Sheckpick Prison. Yeah. Which was this nightmarish place. Now, yeah. granted, a policeman in any prison. Yeah, it's not good. A, yeah, as a prisoner is is a bad situation. But Sheckpick Prison was built in 1984. Yeah. I mean, it was built not even 10 years before he went to prison. Yeah. Um, when he went to prison, assuming that he went to prison when he left the police, the British were still in, in charge. Of Hong Kong. Of Hong Kong. So I, I don't think it would have been that bad. Yeah. It's prison. I mean, it's, it's, it's prison. prison. I'm not saying that. It's not in the Netherlands. Right. Right. It's not like house, house arrest. No. But he wasn't, you know, tied up in the jungle for 10 years or something. No. It wasn't that bad. But anyway, he never says, but you know, I kind of deserved it. No. So we find out Sir John's not dead. No. He gets his stuff back. Nice silhouette shot. Yeah. And then we go to the Florians to frame them for a crime they haven't committed no we go to florian's to find the treasure in the well but that's not a crime but it is because they didn't declare it but that's the crime that they've committed they could easily add a clause and say yet to that we were waiting to get it all up you have 14 days to declare a treasure to the coroner okay 
14 days from when you first find it. Okay. And they didn't want to do that because they didn't want anybody else to find out about the wreck because they needed time to get the rest of the stuff. And then I would say their crime is that they don't intend to declare it ever. Yeah. That's the crime that they're being... Um, they're going to be charged with and for being jerks. Thank God John spilled his water. They're guilty of being jerks. They are jerks. So I have a side thing to tell you. Well, that's well, well. So when I was looking up the ship, because yeah. I wanted to know if there really was a shipwreck around that area. Yeah. Um, and there was, but it was in 2007. Okay. Okay. So this, this ship called the Napoli, which was a container ship, great big container ship. Yeah. It grounded itself um, further away and then they kind of towed it and moved it a few times and they finally grounded it at Branscombe. Okay. So that's where they salvaged it and took it apart. Okay. But before they could do that, stuff started leaking out of the containers. Of all these containers. And coming up onto the beach. Okay. And despite warnings from the police, the villagers started going out and salvaging stuff that was washing up, including BMW motorcycles, empty wine casks, nappies, perfume, and car parts. (laughs) 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 And they they wound up imposing a law that had not been imposed in the area for over a hundred years to make these people return what they had salvaged because it was so out of hand. Yeah. That they had to get people to stop doing it. They were like, fine, you got, you know, somebody got some wine and some, some, uh, some diapers. Fine, you can have those. But then people were coming from all over the place. Well, you, you get and hoping these, to find a motorcycle washed up on you, the beach. You get these weird stories of desert islands that are covered in baseball mitts and yeah, things like that. Yeah. Right. Well, there was the the rubber duckies for a while that yeah. were coming out of a container or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the the real um, the real bad part about the Napoli is that where where it actually beached and was then salvaged is a protected wildlife area that's really important. Mm. Um, and so when they cut it apart, of course, all this oil leaked into the water and it was just a really bad scene. Um, but that ship actually crashed where they're claiming this Harlequin Crash. crashed. And the Harlequin did actually crash in the year they said it did, but someplace completely different. Okay. So that's a bonus of living at the seaside. You might get nappies washed up. Or a BMW motorcycle. Who knows? Or an empty wine cask. Why would you want an empty one? Anyhow, best corpse? Best corpse of the week. Nice corpse. We've only got one. We only have one. Martin, you win. Congratulations. But (laughs) it's Martin's pictures on the whiteboard that wins. It, it's a pretty good death. Yep. I'll get. I'll, but I, I'm going to give the special effects crew credit for that death, and not not the actor. Yep. After, After the credits. Well, okay. Sir John has a long and happy life. Yeah. And I think he gives Haley a second chance, and I think they bond their relationship. I hope so. At least yeah. he doesn't prosecute her. Yeah. But she's she's a nasty number. Yep. You know she's Cully's friend, so of course she is. Yes. Uh, Jack and Ruby are slapping and tickling. <laughs> and Ted's down in the bar drinking. Yes. The Florians probably won't do prison time, but they might have to pay a big fine. Big fine. It's Carol that's problematic. Yeah. Because her entire world is destroyed. Because he also brought in the fish for the fish place. Mm-hmm. So 
Like she's out of a job. She has no husband. It was, her life was a total lie. Yeah. And now she's Joyce Barnaby's friend. So she's bound to die or become a homicidal <laughs> maniac. So, Meanwhile, Reg keeps rolling on in his milk float. Yep. Collecting the gossip. Reg. He's the actor who plays Reg, though we don't see him, is in another episode in this season. He's in the next episode. As Reg? No. Oh. I, th- I think they did a two-for-one for him. A two-for. Yeah. They should have got him to play the car. The cop that says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Speaking of the next episode. What do we got coming up? 48, episode nine, uh, season nine, episode five, four funerals and a wedding. It is a crazy episode. Good. We need crazy after this one death. Jeez. It has Barnaby's mother-in-law in it. Yeah. It has Barnaby. No, he doesn't ride the donkey. No. The priest rides the donkey. The cleric. The vicar. Vicar rides the donkey. Backwards. Yes. Has all sorts of very weird. This is the kind four of. Four funerals. There are four deaths in this episode. It's kind of the first midsummer that has gender wars in it. It's yes. not the last, but it's. Oh, it's it's definitely it introduces that, gender that theme. wars. Yeah. Yeah. So the moral of the story is uh, don't pay blackmail. Because yeah. the Vikings will just come back. Yeah. That's what we've learned this the week. The Geld. Dane Geld. The Dane Geld. It's a good thing Martin's a blonde. Yes. It looks sort of like, yeah, not really. The picture in the magazine is the smarmiest human being on the planet. He wears an ascot. Come on. He does. He's awfully smarmy. <laughs> With his slicked back I don't hair. know why they film all the flashbacks in that weird fisheye lens. So he looks gross? Everybody looks gross in a fisheye lens. Especially so. bad guys. I guess. Block! Block! All right, Maniacs, until next week. Bye, Maniacs. Bye, Maniacs. Now, the the early ones certainly are late 60s and early 70s. That's and that, a Roger Moore, isn't it? Yeah, Octopussy is yeah. a Roger Moore. And then the first one I saw in the theaters was either Moonraker for your eyes only. I think it was Moonraker. I think that goes Moonraker, then for your eyes only. Oh, none of them measure up to George Lazenby. He was the best. Uh, Sean Connery's the best. We can fight about that another time. Yep.